Eric Whirl. Hi, everybody. Hi, everyone. I'm Stephanie. And I'm Sarah. And this is Dead, Dead Time Stories. A weekly podcast where Sarah and I get together to talk about ghost stories, true crime, mysteries, cults, conspiracies, the supernatural, paranormal, or even just the generally weird, eerie, spooky, strange stuff that we want to talk about that week. Why is that, Sarah? Because it's our show and and not yours. If it's your first time listening to the show, stop, Stop. go back, start at episode one. Grumble, grumble, thumped in my mouth a little bit. Grumble, thumped in my mouth. Grumble, thumped. Stop. Please go back, go back, go back to the beginning, please. And welcome back. Welcome back. You know, those of you who started from the beginning and those of you who are returning now. After having started from the beginning in the first place, or from starting from the beginning after we yelled at you at the beginning of this episode. We're thankful for you either way. We are. Welcome. We've been planning out. We've, we planned out our next few recording sessions. We did. We're so on top of it. We're, We're so professional. You are excited. You're like, forget today's episode. You're excited about next week already. I am. I do. I'm excited about this week. I'm sorry. I don't want to shortchange this week. This week is still good. It's good. This week is not next week. I'm I to say excited. I don't want to say to say I don't want to say I'm excited necessarily to talk about my story, but it's a very it's very controversial. Ooh, we're gonna talk about some heavy themes. Ooh. while we try and keep it light. But um, yeah, we're gonna come. We're gonna we're gonna like talk about some feelings. Ooh, feelings! I'm excited. Yay! That's my story, which is gonna be second, but. We've got stuff going on. We've got a show coming up in we May. Do. We do. May 14th. Yes. I bet you can buy tickets at CasabuenaCP.com. Or at Laurel Hill. Right? Sure. We're doing Beth. Directed by Mary Angela. Listen to last week's episode. Week the week before. before. Directed by Mary Angela. Savedra. Because there's two A's. <laughs> There's two A's there. There is. I uh, love writing yeah. her last name. I don't know why. Just because I like being like S-A-A-V-E-D-R-A. Because she is. And also her birth date is and her social security number is. <laughs> <laughs> As we spell her, her first mother's and last maiden name. name is. <laughs> Where she went to high school. The first make and model of her car. But she is directing this show that we're going to be in. Yes. May 14th. Mm, Beth. West Laurel Hill Cemetery, yes, West Laurel not Hill regular Bala Laurel Kenwood, Hill. Correct. And yeah, it's like we did last year when we did a Shakespeare spoof in the cemetery. We're doing another one. And me and Sarah are going to be there. Tina is going to be there. Nina, who was in the previous show, is going to be there. Correct. It's going to be a good time. And other people, Josh Hawkins New is people, in it. New people, Josh. Josh from Guestoberfest. We love Josh Hawkins. We do. Ah! Can't wait to see him this evening at rehearsal. It'll be fun. Good times. It'll be good times. Yeah. What else is going on in your life, Sarah? Um, you know, just life. Yeah, that's fair. That's about it. Yeah. The podcast, the show. Podcast, the show. Yeah. And life. Yeah. You know. That's fair. How about you? Yeah, you have same. shows. You have other shows. Not right now. Oh, okay. I mean, I've got some gay bills booked, but that uh, is being reworked right now, the gay bill schedule for the rest of the year. So gotcha. I don't know what my dates are as of yet. I will be, I think anybody, anybody who listens to our show I don't believe we'll be going to Snatcherella just based on this information. So it's not a spoiler. It's spoiler alert for y'all. Correct. Um, I will be performing in Snatcherella on 420. I will be uh, a backup dancer for the lovely Avery Goodname. Love it. So I know that I haven't had a rehearsal yet for it, but I know it's a Shrek number. 
and that I will be one of the Duloc dancers. Love it. So, yeah. It's exciting. I'm big excited. things yeah. on the horizon. Really big, life-changing things. It'll be Polly Watercracker. A Duloc? A Duloc citizen? I'm making more candles. I'm hoping to launch my candle business by the end of May. I love it. I was like, yeah, there's tiny hobbies. We're gardening. We've got our garden plot. Right? I was like, there's tiny, there's tiny life things. What I'm are trying- your hobbies, listeners? I thought you were asking me. <laughs> I was like, well. <laughs> but that's it. Otherwise, I- I'm excited about the show. I'm excited for more time to dive into subjects that Ooh. I find fascinating and a giveaway that we're working on. Yes. Um, Hope so y'all excited are excited. Other big things and excited to find excited ways for um, people to give us their money. <laughs> Ear. No, we appreciate everybody's support. Y'all have been so lovely oh, and kind. It's been uh, and of course, continue to support our show by subscribing to our Patreon. Please. By we're here. We're still doing it. On our website and buying merch, you know, or, you know, just, I don't know if you can just send money. You can. We'll take it. You we'll can. We'll take it. You can make a one-time donation on Patreon. It is possible. Yeah. I love that. It's great. All right, y'all. We're going to get into it. Let's do it. Because I'm, Sarah's excited. I'm excited. Let's go. And Did we have you, rehearsal in an hour. Are you Let's trying to go. give your teaser now or are you no, trying to give your teaser end. at the end? Okay. The end. All right. Well, then let's do this. Let's hey, go. Hey, Sarah. Hey, Stephanie. Hey, hey Leslie. Y'all, y'all ready, ready to, to talk, talk about, about some ghosts? Y'all ready to talk about some ghosts? Yeah, are you talking about a ghost this week? I am. Yeah, talk multiple about it. ghosts. Okay, multiple ghosts. This is the old Shangji Hospital in Singapore, China. Now I know they're in lockdown right now. Right? They're still in lockdown. In sure. China? No, I, I don't know. You haven't heard about that? No. Oh, never I'm mind. Sorry. I think it was like a big deal. Okay. That they're like in lockdown, lockdown. Like over COVID? Yes. Okay. I mean, I remember initially, but. I, I guess I feel like I at this point I think it's only the U.S. because the U.S. is so bad at handling it. But I, I, I guess it's fair to say there are other countries that are also still experiencing issues. I'm going to cut all of I'm that. an American, you know, so, it only, it so I only think me. about how, how it affects our country. I'm sorry. I'm trying to unlearn it. I know we have international listeners, but you have to understand that's how Americans are socialized. I don't think we have any in China because I don't think they're allowed to. That's hell no. I mean, they're not even allowed Facebook, right? Is I don't know. I don't know. I I know that I saw on Reddit people in Singapore in lockdown and then going out onto their roofs and then drones showing up and being like, get back inside. Oh, my God. <laughs> anyway, this is like most haunted locations. One of the most haunted locations in all of Singapore. Okay. But it's the old Shanji Hospital. History. The hospital was built in 1935 to serve the British Royal Air Force, during which time it was known as the RAF Hospital. Sure, fun. The British withdrew upon the outbreak of war in the Pacific and the Japanese occupation of Singapore in 1942. During this time, Japan used the hospital as a prison camp for British soldiers and their allies, as well as anyone considered to be anti-Japanese. So it became a holding cell for prisoners of war, sure. basically. Uh, not a good place to be, as I'm sure you can imagine. So we're getting the trauma imprint on the location. The hospital was also thought to be a base for the Japanese secret police or Kempetai. Probably butchering how to say that. 
They held jurisdiction over occupied territories and prisoners of war. The Kempeitai had a reputation for ruthlessness, and many believed that prisoners held in the hospital grounds were often tortured to death. Rumor has it that the hospital held tortured chambers, and they believe that because allegedly a room was found that had thick chains hanging from the walls and blood-stained floors. Yeah, it did. Just like Grumblethorpe. In fact, oof, Grumblethorpe had a blood-stained floor. This says blood-stained floors. Multiple. Gotcha. Yes, with a Z. In fact, some stories claim that the Kempeitai would impale the severed heads of executed prisoners on iron stakes outside of public buildings during their occupation of the hospital. Not good. Lots of people died. Lots of people died in vicious ways. It's not even fully documented because it was the bad guys. Finally, in 1997, the site was closed down entirely. Services were transferred to the nearby to a nearby hospital, which became the new Shanji General Hospital, and the old Shanji Hospital slipped into abandonment. In 2006, the site was put up for lease. A company purchased the property in hopes of converting the grounds into a luxury resort, because I guess. Plans soon fell through, however, surprise, surprise, because everyone wants to stay at a luxury resort haunted by the ghosts of prisoners of war. That sounds like a recipe for a rip-roaring good, good time. Good time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just a great time. And all-inclusive, too. All-inclusive of ghosts. Today, the building is defunct and abandoned. The only things that remain are remnants of the past, unhoused people that once sought shelter there, and, of course, evidence of satanic rituals because it's an abandoned building. So, obviously, people came and held satanic rituals in the abandoned hospital. That's where you because, go. Oh, that's where you do that's it. That's where you go do I don't seances. know if you haven't read the witchcraft handbook, but it's like step one, find an abandoned prison or hospital. Bis- yeah, I was going to say prison, hospital. The, uh, the best one you can get is insane asylum or like sanitarium. That's very true. Right? But, but they usually you know, they like of, to bulldoze those. You know, and the old timey ones were all, were all of those things in one. Exactly. So, duh, of course, satanic rituals. Uh, and of course, today it is home to a shit ton of ghosts. Yes. The hospital and its ghostly reputation was even used as the set for a 2010 mockumentary called Haunted Shanji. So the production crew came in and filmed in the old hospital. Okay. And so, of course, they claim to have a shit ton of experiences. But this mockumentary is like found footage of people who went into the hospital and got lost in the tunnels that are apparently underground. So you say mockumentary, but mockumentary makes me think comedy style. Is it supposed to be funny or is it supposed to be like a found footage like horror movie? Kind I think of? it's supposed to be a found okay. footage horror movie. Okay. I don't know if it's funnier. I'm sure if I watched it, I would probably find it funny, but I don't think it's supposed to be funny. <laughs> uh, apparently you can find it on Amazon Prime. So if anyone wants to go give it a shot. However, apparently some of the filmmakers had such a harrowing experience that they swore to never come back. And they also claimed to have even caught a shadow figure on camera that while they were filming and they left it in the final film. Yeah, they did. Apparently. Why wouldn't they? I mean, yeah, of course. 
you don't even have to pay them. Like you don't even have to credit that. That right. I was like, that ghost was to. uncredited. Uncredited, not getting royalties. Screaming woman ghost as herself. <laughs> as herself. Don't ask for any information. She's not represented. She's not working again. Speaking of Screaming Woman number Introducing one. Screaming Woman in memory of Screaming Woman. <laughs> no, it's Screaming Woman in memory of woman. <laughs> but, you know, now she's screaming. In Ghosts. One spirit who was allegedly caught on camera is the ghost of a nurse. And I'm going to try to show you the footage, but I, I could not find the exact one that I found earlier. So it's like other bullshit and then the snippet of the footage. But anyways... Apparently, they caught footage of a nurse walking through the corridor, and they're looking from a different building into that building, and it's a hallway that there's windows all on one side, and they capture the shadow figure of what could be interpreted as a nurse holding a child walking down the corridor. Okay. The story goes behind the nurse that in the 1940s, a wounded soldier died on this nurse's watch. Whether he died by her negligence or he died from his wounds is unknown. What is known is that the nurse was blamed for his death and the soldier's family came and enacted their revenge by brutally killing her. Yeah, they fucking did. Oh, geez. So the video circulated online of what appears to be the apparition of a nurse carrying a baby seen through the windows of the hospital. Could this be the nurse that met her demise at the hands of the family of her wounded patient? So I'll hand you this. You can hit play. I can't see the lady. You see it? I mean, I see that there's something circled. Okay. Yeah. Now I saw it move. Right? I mean, it's... And circling her again. It's semi-clear. It's interesting. I just don't know well, if I would swear that that's a ghost. We'll post it online. We'll see what you think, if I can get the video to work. Anyway, that was something that was caught. Visitors to the grounds also report hearing disembodied screaming. Screaming ghost number one. Always. In memory of woman. Uh, seeing strange shadow people both in the day and the night, which the nurse video happens during the day. Some also claim to have seen the bloody apparitions of soldiers walking the halls, while others have reported the presence of a young boy who simply sits and stares. I don't like that. And perhaps the scariest ghost of all, a crawling ghost baby. Oh, yeah, I don't like right? that. I don't like that. Right? A regular baby is scary enough. I don't need a ghost baby crawling after me. A ghost baby? No. No, thank you. What do they even eat? Do they drink water? What happens? I, that just makes me think of, like, I feel like it was on True Blood, but something that I've seen where there was, like, oh, it might have been what we do in the shadows. <laughs> <laughs> where there was, like, a vampire baby. <laughs> where you're, like, you're like, who turns a baby yes. into a yes. vampire? Yes, it's from the show. <laughs> because, yes. But we then, just recently finished watching okay. the series. Yeah, it's, yes. like it's been a while. He turns, he's like, yes, I turned that baby. Because I feel like on True Blood, there was one that was like a toddler, but it like was, it was old was enough to baby. talk. But I was like, it must have been what we do in the shadows. There was one where I was like, no, it was a baby. Like yes. it was a literal baby who was a vampire. Yes. We were like, why? <laughs> so funny. <laughs> That's what that makes me think of. But, but this like, isn't oh, a vampire this is a baby. baby. This is a ghost, a ghost baby. baby. Ugh. 
Numerous paranormal investigators report entering the old Shanji hospital only to have one member disappear. When these missing individuals finally return, they each tell a similar story. They had followed what appeared to be a member of the group away from the others, usually to a desolate part of the hospital. As they moved through the hospital corridors, this familiar figure would say that they didn't belong at the old Shanji hospital. The site was dangerous, and their group should never return. Upon turning a darkened corner or exiting the hospital completely, this friend would then vanish into thin air. No, I don't like it. Personal encounter that I found. It goes, this story took place during my army days a couple of years back. This group of friends and I attended a campmate's birthday party at a nearby area, and someone suggested that we check out Old Shanji Hospital since we were already there. We left the party around 11 p.m. and proceeded to the hospital. When we reached there, we followed one of my friends who had been there before. We entered through a side gate leading to a small entrance of the building. When we reached the first staircase landing, that friend suggested we go up to the highest level, walk along the corridors to the other end of the building. We followed the plan. While we were walking along the corridors, many of us strayed into some of the rooms to peek at its decay that's completely abandoned. Thus, we did not exactly walk in an orderly manner with people falling behind or overtaking me constantly. There were about 17 or 18 of us and some friends had brought their girlfriends along and I don't really remember who was around me. When you're nervous and scared, you don't really pay attention to those details. Eventually, we reached the end of the corridor and I heard my friend's instruction to take the stairs to the first floor. Those in the front started to descend the stairs and I followed suit. I think I was one of the few who were at the back of the group, thus I just descended without paying attention to the level. I thought, just follow the person in front of me and I should exit at the correct level. For those who have been there, you would know that the stairs lead all the way from the top level down to the basement levels. I just continued going down level after level, and between each level, you had to go down two flights of stairs. After descending the first, you made a U-turn and descended another before reaching the next level. I saw someone in front of me in a white t-shirt going down the stairs, so I followed. As I descended the first flight of stairs and was about to U-turn to go down the next, my friends called out to me. I looked up and saw all of them standing at the top. I turned to look at which level I was going, and it clearly said B1 for the basement. Where are you going? asked one of my friends. I didn't say anything, and I just climbed up the stairs to meet with them before exiting the building. I didn't mention anything about it, as everyone always said, if you were to encounter something strange or supernatural, do not talk about it immediately at the location. Just act like you don't know anything. So the question still plagues me till today. Who was the person I was following down to the basement? I don't like that. Who was it? I don't like it. Who was it? Next paranormal experience. Personal. This one was titled, Don't Regret It. Regret. Regret. To me, and it also got me because this is the first line of the paragraph of the story. To me, having to urine in my school skirt is not going to happen. My friends and I encountered a terrible experience, which completely changed my mind. Uh, What? Is this just translated weirdly? Yes. But it basically is like I would never think that I would pee my pants until until I I had a situation that made me pee my pants. 
Because I was so scared from the ghosts. You're in my school skirt. You're in my school skirt. I got to stop. Okay. School was functioning as per normal. (laughs) My best friend had been quiet for the whole day, but after much persuasion from me, she finally spoke up or instead, or instead she broke up. It's translated weird. She finally spoke up, obviously distraught. She told me that she had gone to visit with some other girlfriends, the old Shanji Hospital, in all caps. It was an old hospital that had been abandoned for so many years. She told me that she doesn't want to ever enter that horrid place again. And I asked her why, but she continued giving me the same answer. I then decided to ask my other friends to take me there where they'd been the other day as they said they were going there again today. Of course, I was not prepared for anything. I remembered there were 16 of us, so we were walking in pairs. My friend, who had had the bad experience, did not come along, and I didn't want anything hap- anything to happen to her again. So I paired up with another girl. We'll call her L. Once I entered the gate, I felt the creeps, but I didn't show it. We passed by the ground mortuary. It was wet, old, and don't forget, it stinks. You're not allowed to enter the hospital without a valid reason and permission from the undertaker. Weird. The desk of the undertaker is located in the middle of the hospital. When the undertaker saw us, he gave us glaring. He may have thought we were up to no good because we were just a group of kids. What are you here for? He asked sternly. We said, we're here to do a project, sir. He said, you can enter, but please don't break anything else or they might get angry. Of course, we were puzzled to hear his words, but it didn't bother us much. We entered the hospital. There is the laundry room, and it was very wet. We began exploring the building, and I and my partner came across a room. We didn't realize at the time that it was an operation room until we were in the middle of the room alone. No other, of, no other people from our group were there. I then caught a glimpse of a young girl weeping in the corner of the room. She was calling out to something to rescue her, but I couldn't hear her words clearly, but I think she said, and it's in another language, I'm not even going to try. It was saying that it doesn't want to do it and she doesn't want to die. All this was said from her to what I think was her mother. I took a step forward and reached out to her And every step I moved towards her, I found myself more secured, feeling more protected. My friend that I was with kept saying, are you out of your mind? Let's get out of here. But I didn't reply. The nearer that I got to that little girl, the more I felt secure, the more I felt sleepy, and the more I felt dreamy. That's not. Out of the blue, the girl ran up to me and hugged me. As if I was her long-lost sister. I don't like it. I was in shock by her behavior. She then told me that she was forced to go for an appendix transplant by her stepmother. And her stepmother knew that there was nothing wrong with her, but insisted on her undergoing the surgery. Her stepmother wanted to inherit her insurance money and wanted her to be killed desperately. She begged me to believe her, and of course I believed her. It happened right in front of my eyes and, not to forget, the friend that was there, Elle. The little girl then turned around, made her way back to the corner where I saw her before. She gave me and Elle a satisfied smile, and she crouched down and disappeared. We both went home with a mixed feeling, 
we were happy that the little girl was satisfied, but we were also scared because we spoke to a spirit. The next day in school, my original friend asked me if I had seen any little girl in the operating theater. I just told her that the little girl is happy now and that she just needed someone kind enough to play with her and listen to her. Whatever she tells you, please believe it because you don't know what's going to happen to you if you doubt her. As for her stepmother, apparently she was buried alive. Yes, exclamation point. You got it right. She was buried by that small little girl herself. If you wish to see her, do visit that little room and do stare at every corner for that little girl. And that's the end of it. Now, these personal experiences are from a blog called Hung Zai, spelled H-U-N-G-Z-A-I dot com, known as Singapore's Freakiest Online Ghost Stories, a forum where people can post their own personal experiences. The old Shanji Hospital has over 40 entries, and these were just two of them. Dang. And that is the old Shanji Hospital in Singapore. It is abandoned and derelict and apparently chock full of ghosts. Ghosts, man. Of course it is. And that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Do it. And I'm excited to hear about your story that's going to start a conversation. It is going to start a conversation. So first, I'm going to say a couple of names, and you're going to tell me if those names mean anything to you. Okay, trivia. Let's go. And then we're going to talk about this case, and we're going to talk about some of the complexities of this case. All right. So if I say the name Conrad Roy, does that name mean anything to you? No, not off the top of my head. What about the name Michelle Carter? Seems familiar, but again, off the top of my head, no. Okay. Okay. So this was a landmark case just a few years ago in Massachusetts that is also sometimes colloquially referred to as the text message suicide case. Is this the one that they just did? There was just a 2020 on it. Mm -hmm. Um, There is also... There's a documentary on HBO that's a couple years old called I Love You Now Die. Mm-hmm. And there is now a dramatic retelling of the right, story yeah. is it on the high Hulu school kids? called The Girl from Plainville. Yes. Okay. I do vaguely know about that case because she was like his girlfriend and she was like, you should just go ahead and kill yourself. And then she tried to say that, like, I didn't think he was actually going to do it. But then she was telling friends that she was like, guess what? I'm going to make him kill himself. <laughs> Is that is, right? that is that your understanding? Yes, that's a that's that's my spark notes on what I know. So yes and no. She didn't tell her friends that she was going to make him kill her, kill himself. Okay. And to say friends is like really being generous to this girl. She had no friends. She had no friends. Only dolls. Only dolls. <laughs> so what I want to say going into this right now is yeah, content warning. We're going to talk a lot about suicide and a lot about telling someone to kill themselves because I know that you and I like to joke about that right but we joke about it in the understanding that it's like one it is a horrible thing to say to somebody and we know that we say it to each other in full jest (laughs) however right if I if you or I seriously believe that that was an issue for the other one we would not say it but I also know that sometimes we say it on this show right so I want to 
I want to throw that out there that like many of the jokes that we love so much, like the level of inappropriateness of that joke. Um, but this case was a landmark case because she was tried for involuntary manslaughter mm-hmm. over her, whether or not we we're going to go into that today, over yeah. her influence of him to commit suicide, right? Yes. So my understanding of this case was, yeah, like she texted this boy all the time, like, why are you going to, why are you killing yourself? You should kill yourself. You should kill yourself. And a lot of the way... A lot of it is like the media spectacle, right? Around yes. who Michelle Carter is and the way that she was portrayed in the media. And because they were in high school, right? Yes. Okay. Well, they they had just it was like the summer after. She was still uh I think she was a senior and he was a year older than her. So he was 18 at the time that he committed suicide. She was 17. Baby. So okay. they were just finishing school. Yeah. And the way I think it was kind of portrayed in the media was very much like she was this like siren, right? Yes. And everything that I don't want to in any way say that what she did was okay or right. I want to put that out there. But it was very much portrayed the way that like she's everything we love to hate about a teenage girl, right? Teenage girls are like emotional and sometimes we have this belief that like when girls cry they can like manipulate and have these special powers over boys and they're witchy and manipulative and that's what we don't like right and Mm -hmm. girls are mean and they bully and that's their thing and she's this skinny white girl who is moderately attractive and people were ready to be like this bitch burn the witch burn the witch right burn her and a lot of ways that it was put in the media was almost like This never would have happened if Michelle were not in Conrad's life. Conrad never would have killed himself if it weren't for Michelle pushing him to do it. Okay? Okay. And that's a lot of what the prosecution put forward as well, right? Was the prosecution his mom? His, well, (laughs) the prosecution (laughs) wasn't his mom, but his family, yes, would also have you believe that, like, it was totally Michelle's Michelle's fault. fault. Her baby boy would have never done this to himself of his own accord. Right. There's no way he would be that unhappy. So, um, Michelle Carter and Conrad Roy, by the way, he's Conrad Roy the third, because sometimes I might mention Conrad Jr., but Conrad Jr. is actually his dad. His dad. Yes. He's Mr. Conrad Jr. This is Conrad Jr. the (laughs) third. So the two of them met in Florida in 2012 while they were. Well, there it is. They were both uh, visiting relatives there, but they're not from Florida. They're from Massachusetts, actually. Still, they started in Florida. It's always a bad start. Met in Florida and they like built this little relationship with each other while they were visiting family over the holidays. And they found out that they lived about 35 miles away from each other in Massachusetts. So even though they were on vacation and they met in Florida, both of them were from um, Massachusetts and they were not far apart from each other. However, 35 miles, if you don't have a car and you're a teenager, like that's a long distance relationship. Yeah. He goes to a different school. Yes. (laughs) You don't know him. He goes to a different school. You don't know him. He goes to a different school. So the two of them met in, uh, that was the summer of 2012, okay? So from 2012 on, they had this, like, mostly text and internet-based relationship. They only met in person maybe five or six times over the course of two years. Wow. Okay? 
So he took his life in July of 2014. Okay. Okay. So they began talking around that time. They began talking around the summer of 2012. So they had this like on and off again, boyfriend, girlfriend, like texting relationship, but they're texting all the time. They're instant messaging. Of course. They're talking to each other on the internet. Now, we didn't really have texting when I was in high school. Like, it, you know, was a thing, but you cost money each text that you sent. Yeah. But I had, like, internet boyfriends, right? That was what it was when I was that age. Yeah, it was your AIM boyfriend. And while you didn't have, like, the difference is the constantness of it, right? Yes. With a phone, like, you are instantly reachable all the time. So they were in constant contact with each other, texting back and forth. Mm-hmm. Where I might have had to wait until I got home from school. Yeah. I had like a (laughs) three-hour window every day. And then could talk to my internet boyfriend in the Midwest or whatever, who we never met each other or ever talked on the phone. We only ever talked via instant message. Of course. Ah, good old days of love. (laughs) So getting back to, to Conrad Roy and his death, right? So it was the end of June 2014 getting into July of 2014 when this conversation of her encouraging him to kill himself, that's when that started, right? Now, they had been talking to each other for two years Years, up to this point, right? Before the conversation switched the way that it did. But when she was taken to court, it became this matter of like, what did she do that was illegal, We can talk about it was bad to encourage him to kill himself, but what did she do that was, like, illegal? If it's freedom of speech, if she didn't force him, she didn't threaten him, right? Yeah. Um, What level of, like, manipulation and coercion was she responsible for up until that point? Yeah. So the way that he took his own life was he purchased a generator And he drove to the Kmart with the generator in the truck. He turned the generator on and sat in the truck bed with the generator. At one point, he got out of the truck. I remember that part of the story. And he called Michelle, and they spoke for about 45 minutes. No one really knows exactly what was said except for Michelle. Mm -hmm. But what is understood is that she... The word I'm going to use is encouraged, but there is she told, she like forced, she instructed do it you want him to get back into the truck. Okay? He got back into the truck and within a few hours he died of carbon monoxide poisoning inside of his truck. And at this time, now, she knew where he was because she had been texting with him and talking to him, and he called her for that 45-minute period. In that same amount of time, like, where she was talking to him, she knew where he was. She was texting other people and people in his family to be like, do you know where Conrad is? I haven't heard from Conrad. Does anybody know where Conrad is? I'm so worried about him. What? Does anybody know? Like, do you know where have you talked to him? Has your mom talked to him? Does anybody know where Conrad is? I'm so worried about him. Does anybody know where Conrad is? The next day, she was texting. Well, at this point in the story, use the word friends. But she was texting friends to be like, I'm really worried about him. Like, he has some problems, and I'm really worried that he might have hurt himself. 
and I just don't know what to do. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. But she knows where he is. She knows he's in like the Walmart parking lot. Yes, Kmart, and yes. Kmart. She does know where he is. The insert thing here, Mart parking lot. Ultimately, uh, police were called because, like, by somebody who saw him in the parking lot, not by Michelle. The police came and they put caution tape up, and someone called Conrad Jr., who was his father, and said, "Hey, I, I don't know what's going on, but I think I saw your son's truck at the Kmart uh. with police tape around it." He went to the Kmart where he saw his son in the truck. And he had taken his own life. So his phone was in the car with him and his phone was dead. And police, you know, automatically it was like, okay, well, this is a suicide, but let's, you know, let's tie all our loose ends up. Let's make sure we investigate everything we can. They plug the phone back in. They turn it on and they're able to get into the phone and they find thousands and thousands of text messages between Conrad Roy and Michelle Carter. And the more recent, the last two weeks, she is encouraging him to take his own life. And this was mostly what the prosecution focused on, right? Like they were talking for two weeks. She didn't get him help. She encouraged him. She asked him, when are you going to do it? Have you done it yet? And then she was asking Good morning, people, happy Tuesday, just checking in to see if you've killed yourself yet. Right. And there was really, like I said, this narrative that he would not have killed himself were it not for the influence of Michelle Carter. Okay. Okay. Which, I mean, right now, so far, the facts that have been presented yes. do support that narrative. Yes. Okay. So now we're going to go into the defense. Okay. Right? So Conrad Roy had actually... Before this last two-week point, right, had actually attempted suicide four times prior to being encouraged to do so by Michelle Carter. You know what they say, fifth time's a charm. Fifth time's a charm. And one of the four times, like, he was very close to being successful. Wow. So So his parents weren't on the lookout for this? The most recent of the times that he had tried to commit suicide was after an altercation with his own father where to hear his there's a police report because one was filed for domestic abuse for assault and domestic abuse to hear Conrad Jr. talk about it in an interview after the fact like he was like we got you know. My son came at me first and my dad, you know, when I did that, when I was younger, like my dad, like put me in my place and like, that's what I was doing and I don't regret it. I did what I had to do. Yeah. So Uh... he comes from a home and like they had letters and they had his diary where he talked about like not just the physical abuse from his father, but like his stepmother, like verbally abusing him, calling him names Things like that. So he was going through all of that. The divorce between his parents was very ugly, very violent, very brutal. And that was all happening in the years leading up to his suicide attempts, right? Mm -hmm. At one point, he... So when he was first telling Michelle Carter that he was going to kill himself, mind you, they were talking for two years. 
he she was insisting like please don't please don't hurt yourself i couldn't handle that if something happened to you please don't hurt yourself and he explicitly told her if she told anyone that he had these kind of thoughts he would never speak to her again their relationship was very toxic and really messed up both of them had a lot of mental health issues So Michelle herself, by the time she was 14, was on SSRIs, many of which have not really been tested for children and teenagers. And teenagers still are children. Yeah. Their brains are not fully developed. Our brains aren't fully developed until we're like 24, 25. And she was on, she started on Prozac. She was moved to Celexa. So she was on a few different SSRIs herself. So she had some mental illness issues. He had mental illness issues. She also had issues with eating disorders Mm. before she was 14 years old. So this was a girl who herself was really unwell. Yeah. And the two of them together were a toxic and terrible combination. And he played into those issues of hers as well. And I... I would say that their relationship was emotionally abusive. Like, Mm -hmm. he should not have said the things to her that he said, including, like, putting all that weight of, like, his issues with self-harm and suicide and telling her this in confidence and telling a 14, 15, 16-year-old girl, don't tell anybody this. I will never fucking talk to you again. Yeah. Yeah. That's a lot. That's a lot. She also... Their relationship and the two of them, this is me, you know, speculating. I'm not a professional. But their relationship to the two of them, they were in two different relationships, right? Mm -hmm. Like, she was this young girl that he could, like, kind of pour all of his shit into. And she would just kind of take it. She'll take it and she'll dote on him and she'll, yes. Yes. And for her, he was, like, he was this sick boy and she was this sick girl and they were these like star-crossed like Romeo and Juliet and that came up specifically in their texts too and he said to her well you know how that ends right which is that they both commit suicide that they Not both on purpose though. The other thing that helped so they you know they talked a lot about movies about TV shows the things that they liked and Michelle Carter loved Loved, loved Glee <laughs> and specifically Leah Michelle. Oh no. And in 2013, so the year before what happened with Conrad, that's when Corey Monteith died of an overdose, right? Ugh. And she was a big Glee fan and a Leah Michelle fan specifically. And she could see these correlations between. Now, mind you, like the characters of Rachel Berry and Finn, which were on Glee, and they were played by these actors, Leah Michelle and Corey Monteith, who dated in real life. And then when he died, there was this like sad episode where everybody sang pop yes. songs and they all loved him and did this big tribute to him, right? And then Leah Michelle got to be the star and got to get all the focus of all this pity because she lost her boyfriend. Little do you know, that bitch doesn't know how to read. <laughs> Stop. But some of their text messages, like, they were straight up quotes from Glee. 
And not just quotes from Glee, but she would quote Leah Michelle, like talking about Corey Monteith and the things about like, he's just my person. And I thought like we would always end up together. Like all these quotes that were like directly taken either from Glee or from Leah Michelle. Interviews. And she would say these things to Conrad, like Ugh. about their relationship. Ugh. Yeah. All right. So finally, within the last two weeks of his life, right? is when she started to talk about it differently. And this was almost, his death was almost a year to the day after Corey Monteith's death. Stop. Yes. And when we talked about Michelle's friends, right? Michelle did not have any friends. This is something that her family talked about. This is something that came up a lot for her in therapy because she was on all these SSRIs. It was her entire life, Michelle had just an impossible time trying to make friends she just tried too hard she was too needy and kind of desperate and people felt that off of her and she did not have friends now this is a girl who was an athlete like she played basketball she played softball I think she cheered like she played soccer and adults would always say that she was this really sweet caring girl who was always trying to help people and, like, she just wanted to do what was best and, like, help people out all the time. However, all of these girls would say at her trial, like, she would invite people to do stuff, people that were her teammates at school or her classmates, and no one would ever hang out with Michelle. Nobody would go to her house. Nobody would have her over. Everybody would say that they were too busy. And in reality, people just didn't like her. That's really sad. Yes, it is really sad, which added to... She had an eating disorder. She was on SSRIs. Like, she was on antidepressants. She herself was not mentally well. Yeah. And then she had this really fucked up relationship with another teenager who was really unwell. And by the time that it came to a head, like, she had this vision in her mind of, like, we're Romeo and Juliet. And if he he specifically told her, aside from telling her not to tell anybody about his plans to kill himself... He had specifically told her, like, you're never going to talk me out of this. I'm going to do this. Like, I'm convinced, like, I need to do this. And to her point, by those last two weeks, she had kind of come to the mind that, like, she was helping him do what he wanted to do. Oh. Right? Hmm. But, like, he really wants to die. He's determined to die. I'm just being a supportive partner. Then if that's what he wants, like, the messages that she would send him were, like, I don't think you're going to go to hell if this is really what you want. I think you're going to go to heaven and Jesus is going to welcome you with open arms and was encouraging him not necessarily in, like, you better do this or we're going to break up. But, like, she really thought... Okay, if this is what he really wants to do, like, then I need to be a supportive girlfriend and I need to, to encourage him. And the her asking him, are you going to do it or are you going to do it, was because at that point, every day, he was like, I have a plan. I'm doing it tonight. And then she would text him a bunch <sighs> and he wouldn't answer back. And she would be like, did you do it? Oh, my God, Conrad, are you there? Are you alive? And she wouldn't hear from him until the next morning when he'd be like, no, I'm still alive. I didn't do it. That is so fucked. Yes. <laughs> uh, okay. So how did it pan out? <laughs> right? So she was being 
this case was unprecedented, right? Yeah, it blew up. Because it was not anything that she physically did. Mm -hmm. It was about her words, right? And to what extent were her words responsible for Conrad Roy taking his life? What actions had she done? So what she was being charged with was involuntary manslaughter. And this is in the state of Massachusetts. I'm going to play a clip for you now, an audio clip. Ooh. So what they, what her defense opted to do, and this is also very rare, which is why this had made a big deal, was they waived the right to a jury. They did not want to be tried by a jury. They wanted to be tried by the judge. The reason for that being, in a case like this, where it's like, is what she did illegal? Is it against the law? And it's very like, we don't really have laws around this. When you're going to a case by a jury, a jury is much more likely to vote based on their emotions because Mm -hmm. they don't really know the law. They know how they feel about it. And it was horrible of her to encourage him and not seek help for him. And for that reason, she's responsible. But her attorney was like, we are going to forego a jury. We want to be tried by a judge because a judge knows the The law. law and will base their decision on the law of this matter and not by emotions. And so for that reason, I'm going to play for you now when the judge came back from his deliberations, what he said about the choice that he made and how she was found. Okay. Okay. I'm ready. Are you ready? I think. (laughs) I will go ahead and say this is about like two minutes because he talks about the complexity of it. Sure. All right. So here we go. That any explanation as to a verdict be given. Nonetheless, I am of the opinion that some explanation of my verdicts is warranted. I have essentially divided the evidence in this case into three components. The first component comprises roughly the period of June 29th, 2014 through the ending of the text messages between Ms. Cotter and Mr. Roy on or about July 12th, 2014. The second period commences immediately thereafter through July 13th, 2014. This court first finds that the Commonwealth has proven beyond a reasonable doubt that the actions taken by Ms. Carter as to the period from June 30th to July 12th constituted wanton and reckless conduct by her and serious disregard of the well-being of Mr. Roy. The Commonwealth has not proven as to that time period that said reckless or wanton behavior caused the death of Mr. Roy. Mr. Roy was struggling with his issues and took significant actions of his own. He secured the generator. He secured the water pump. He researched how to fix the generator. He located his vehicle in an unnoticeable area and commenced his attempt by starting the pump. However, he breaks that chain of self-causation 
by exiting the vehicle. He takes himself out of the toxic environment that it has become. When Ms. Carter realizes that Mr. Roy has exited the truck, she instructs him to get back into the truck, which she has reason to know is or is becoming a toxic environment inconsistent with human life. This court finds where one's action create a life-threatening risk to another, there is a duty to take reasonable steps to alleviate the risk. The reckless failure to fulfill this duty can result in a charge of manslaughter. Knowing that Mr. Roy is in the truck, knowing the condition of the truck, Ms. Carter takes no action in the furtherance of the duty that she has created by instructing Mr. Roy to get back into the truck. Consequently, this court has found that the Commonwealth has proven beyond a reasonable doubt that Ms. Carter's actions and also her failure to act where she had a self-created duty to Mr. Roy constituted each and all wanton and reckless conduct. And this court further finds that the Commonwealth has proven beyond a reasonable doubt that said conduct caused the death of Mr. Roy. Ms. Carter, please stand. So then he has her stand to tell her that she has been found guilty. guilty. That's what it sounded like. Yes. But what he was clarifying, so I will shorten it up. (laughs) What he was clarifying was that her cause of his death was not the text messages leading up Two, while that was reckless and wanton and inappropriate behavior, he bought the generator. He put himself in the car. He parked wherever he parked. Mm-hmm. The part where she is guilty is where he got out of the car. She instructed him to get back in. And on top of that, did not call didn't police, call help. didn't call his parents, didn't alert anyone yeah. to what was happening. Yeah. And that that was the reason that she was found guilty. I think that's fair. She knew, I was like, I I understand the logistics behind that thought process of he did all of this on his own, but the second that she was like, you're in that Walmart parking lot and you're trying to kill yourself, like, I, you got to tell. Because then she went and texted his family, where is he? Where is he? Where is he? Where is he? That makes me think that she knew that she should have told someone. Sure. And she knew that by not telling someone she was doing the wrong thing. So then after that, after he had died, remember I said, excuse me, that she was texting people. And after it came out that he was dead, Mm -hmm. those same girls that she would be like, I'm just so sad. Like, can we hang out? And they would be like. Was that also her? Huh? Was she texting herself as pretending to be (laughs) someone else? And she was like, look at these text messages. But those same girls we're like, yeah, like, I feel bad for Michelle. Like, we should hang out. Like, we should make time for her. And she was getting that attention. That she wanted. That she wanted all along. Uh... And she also, there was, like, this baseball event that she threw. Now, remember I said they lived, like, 35 miles apart. And she was throwing this event in her town. 
not in Conrad's town. Mm -hmm. And his friends were like, why are you holding it there? Like all of Conrad's friends and family are here 35 miles away in this town. Like, why aren't you throwing that here? And she's like, well, I don't live there. Like I'm throwing it here so all of my friends and family can come. But it's this event that's like in honor of Conrad. Girl, bad, bad move. Bad move. Now, her PR team is fired. I don't want to say that she got what she wanted, right? Like, she got way more attention than she ever could have possibly wanted or asked for. And one of the things that really bothered me watching her, like, coming out of the court is not her. All these people, right? All these people have opinions that a lot of people were divided about whether or not she was found guilty, right? And some of these people who are like, you know, she's guilty, her biggest critics, whatever, were outside of the courthouse yelling at her, kill yourself, kill yourself. Now, here's my thing about that. That's not okay. If they think that she's guilty because she told him to kill himself, then if she killed herself, how culpable are those people? Yeah. First and foremost. That's dumb. Yes. (laughs) It's so dumb. It makes me it makes me so angry. I'm just like, if you're I can understand me like she's a heinous bitch, whatever. I don't agree with that. I think it's a very complex case. However, if you're like, you should kill yourself because you're guilty. Well, guess what, bitch? If she did, then you're guilty because you told her to kill herself. You just did the same thing. But if you do it, is it your First Amendment rights? Because it was just talk because you didn't do anything. You just said that. Yeah. Buh. So she was sentenced to two and a half years in prison and her defense um, was immediately trying for appeal and they pushed to have her sentence pushed back until after they could appeal, um, which they tried. Their appeal failed and she still went to prison. Yeah. Even though she was sentenced to two and a half years, that was later reduced to 15 months and she was let out on good behavior and she is currently serving probation. She has never talked to the media. She's never done any interviews. Her family has never done any interviews. The Roys have talked to everyone to tell everyone about the horrible things that this girl did to their son. Because they'll refuse to take any accountability for for what they they did. did to set him up for that. Yeah. Yes, that makes me really crazy. Yeah, that's where they're just like, there's no way my boy would ever do something like this. It must have been the influence of that girl. Yes. That harlot, that siren. So um, I know they're in Massachusetts, but that's my accent for them. So now she's 25. She's still in Plainville, Massachusetts. She has avoided media. She has not taken any interviews. She hasn't talked about this case. Sucks that Hulu just came out with that documentary and, and put Hulu it right back out in the spotlight. Dramatic retelling starring Elle Fanning and Chloe Sevigny, who I love. Mm-hmm. But Chloe Sevigny is Conrad's mom. That's who she's playing. But. His family has been all over the media to participate in this story of, like, what a horrible person Michelle is. And I, again, I don't want to defend what she did. It was awful. But the idea that, like, the only reason this happened is because Michelle was a part of his life is absolutely preposterous. And she also was a victim of mental illness and her own issues with her SSRIs and her own problems and her own issues. And it's complicated. And I don't want to be taking up for this (laughs) teenage white girl. 
But it of is, course, but it but is it is so much more complicated than than I understood it to be going into it. Like yeah. I was like, I want to know more about this because, like, what did this girl do? Like, what yeah. happened? And then when I really like watched, I watched the HBO documentary and I read more about it, and I was like, wow, like this is a horribly sad thing that happened. But I don't know if I believe she's as culpable as has been pushed but again she wasn't found guilty because of the text messages she was found guilty because when he got back in and she knew that's what he was doing she didn't call anybody for help yep and i get that yeah that part i get but yeah i also i'm just like i don't think this is a malicious She's not going to go out and do this again. Right. The lawyer was like, she is not a danger to society. Like, she was. This was a toxic relationship. And one of the reasons the judge said that the sentence that he gave was so light was because he was like, I believe that she is young enough. Like, she is capable of rehabilitation. Absolutely. Um. So... Suffice to say, we make all those all these jokes and we say these horrible things in jest with each other. But if you are very seriously a person who has considered or thinks about suicide, I would like to put it out there that Please the National Suicide Prevention Hotline is 1-800-273-8255. It is a 24-7 lifeline. And I heard this one time, and I hate this quote. I hate it so much, but I'm still going to put it out there. Um <laughs> Because this isn't true for people <laughs> who are, I'm not a doctor, and I'm not going to say when assisted suicide is and isn't okay, and which diseases it's okay to kill yourself with, and which ones it's not. Um, but I will put it out there that in this situation with a teen who is struggling like this, that suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. Yes. And I would hope that anyone in that situation seeks help. Do not trauma dump on just a friend and confide in them and don't tell anybody else. Please seek help. You matter. And that's it. Absolutely. And that is the story of Conrad Roy III and Michelle Carter. Wow. Conrad Roy the third and his shitty parents. And I have not watched The Girl from Plainview yet, but I will now. But that's on Hulu. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I've been seeing a lot of stuff about it, but I haven't watched it. It wasn't necessarily on my radar. And well, we've talked about this before, too. We always prefer the documentaries over the dramatic retelling. Yeah, it's just not as good. It's just not as good. But I watched the documentaries and now I'm just like, I'm I'm curious to see this take on the story. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm curious to see how they... That how would, they that approach it or how they spin it. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I get that. Yeah. I mean, tell us what you think. I mean, what do you, this is a very complex case. It's a very complex case. There's a lot to it. I would love, love, love to hear people's opinions on it. Please, absolutely. Please, drop please. us a line. So drop, drop us, us a, a line. Hit us up on Instagram. Email us at deadtimestories with a Z at gmail.com. And of course, you can support us on Patreon. You can buy merch from our website. Or the best way that you can do it that costs absolutely no money is by leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify Spotify. or the Google Play Store, wherever you listen to our podcast. Yes, it's greatly, greatly appreciated. And that's it, y'all. I'm I'm Stephanie. Uh, I'm Sarah. And I'll say make sure you tune in next week because, Stephanie, I got something big for you. Mm. And I've got three words for it. Not three words. Three uh, phrases. And that is talk radio, write-in candidate, 
and goat testicles. And I'm going to leave it at that. Okay. Tune in next week. It's going to be one hell of a wild ride. It's going to be a wild ride. That's Sarah's episode next week. It's all Sarah. Tune in. Tune in. I'm Stephanie. And I'm Sarah. And this has been Dead Dead Time Time Stories. Thank you for listening. Thank you. Dead Time Stories is hosted by Sarah Heddens and Stephanie C. Curtison. Music and editing by Eric Gershnow. Artwork by Rennie Slackman. Oh, it stopped recording. You better stop. <laughs> <laughs> you better stop playing. <laughs>